The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, music, TV shows and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And we're talking about a tale as old as time, a tune as old as song. Yes, we're doing a deep dive into Beauty and the Beast, a crucial part of the so-called Disney renaissance of the late 80s and really into the 90s. Uh, The Little Mermaid kicked it off, but Beauty and the Beast really showed that this wasn't a fluke. This was the bar that the Disney animators were holding themselves to, and it was a high one. Uh, We'll talk about this in the episode, but Beauty and the Beast really took feature-length cartoons out of the realm of children's entertainment and into the world of adults and, you know, even, if I can say this, high art. Yeah. Truly one of my favorite animated films ever. I think it's probably my favorite Disney film if I had to pick. What do you think? Well, it's the only one with Jerry Orbach in it, so... (laughs) (laughs) That's why it gets a sterling A-plus for me. It's incredible. Great film. And, yeah, like you said, I mean, I would argue hasn't been topped uh, there are some that would argue lion king but i'm gonna i'm more of a beauty and the beast guy i don't know it's the i, I can't get past sexy nala <laughs> it's, it's too weird for me not that i wasn't sexually attracted to the beast but like <laughs> he at least was bipedal <laughs> all right let's all get right. into it <laughs> i hope you're all listening to this right now just imagining we're doing this in like a big library like the beast right now oh yeah absolutely that is where i am seated well, that library is awesome yeah it was so cool all right well folks we welcome you to be our guest as it were relax pull up a chair as heigl and i proudly present everything you didn't know about beauty and the beast <laughs> So Walt Disney himself and his frozen head wanted to do a version of Beauty and the Beast way back in the day. And just to give you a quick context, um, there's Disney's like first great phase that runs from like 1930 to 1959, roughly. 
And Walt had supposedly considered the source material for this for adaptation in the 1930s. But according to Peter M. Nichols in the New York Times Essential Library children's movies, he then abandoned it. Yeah, apparently the studio endured a lot of financial losses, actually, after the kind of not-so-great responses to Bambi and Fantasia. They're classics now, but I guess they didn't do as well as Disney had hoped at the time. And then they were drawn into the war effort for the Second World War to make propaganda films. And so the whole Beauty and the Beast idea kind of got put in the back burner for, you know, at least a decade, probably into the 50s. Didn't Fantasia start finally recouping its losses when they started rerunning it in, in like, the 60s for the stoners? I think so, yep. Yeah. Um, so by this point, though, it, when, once we get out of the war phase, when they started making propaganda films, which I don't know if I've seen any Disney propaganda films. That sounds fun. It's up there with uh, the Dr. Seuss propaganda films. They're good. I mean, good. <laughs> hey, let me qualify good. They're good. They're, they're interesting. Yeah. But so by 1946, uh, Jean Cocteau has put out his own live version adaptation, which is justifiably famous regarded as one of the best films ever made but between disney's presumed hatred for the french and the fact that he just didn't like competition uh which i'm probably also projecting they just gave up on the storyline <laughs> yeah i mean i guess disney made an attempt to revisit the idea in the 50s but he and his writers really struggled with the second half of the movie when bell's just locked in the beast castle and they were worried that the film was going to be in their words claustrophobic because there are some versions of this fairy tale where she's locked up for months before she meets the beast. So they really struggled with how to kind of like make this something that really played on the screen. And also Walt was tied up with not only other movies throughout the 50s, I mean, from Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Peter Pan on down, but he was trying to get Disneyland off the ground as well. So the Beauty and the Beast idea was put on ice before Walt himself was put on ice in 1966 <laughs> when he died. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for that. That, that is, wait, brief is Walt frozen sidebar? That is true, right? That's not an urban legend. He he is cryogenically frozen. I have no idea. I I don't want it ruined. I want it. I want to. In my heart, he is. <laughs> in your cold, in your equally frozen heart. Yeah. Anyway, so fast forward to the 1980s, and honestly, another one of my favorite films of all time during production for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You have to understand that at this point. Disney had set up a satellite studio in London. And so they are doing kind of overseas productions at the same time they're doing stuff in the States. And so they initially pitch doing Beauty and the Beast to Roger Williams, who is the guy who's running the animated portions of Roger Rabbit. His passion project is another movie called The Thief and the Cobbler, which does eventually get made. And it's been kicking around also since the 60s. That film is wild because it's been it was gestating forever. Like it 30 finally years. Gets yeah, it finally gets released and it flops. And one of the reason it flops is because Miramax and Harvey Scissorhands, actual monster Harvey Weinstein, had done his classic thing, which is just get involved and just meddle with it. Um, you know, we don't have to go into what and how he did, but this film flops when it comes out in 1993. So... Um, Roger Williams almost directed it, wound up not directing it, and uh, then his passion project was mercilessly f with and died. So that's a fun story about it, the animation machine in the late 80s and 1990s. Yeah, it's interesting to think that Beauty and the Beast at this stage was, uh, they wanted it to be a non-musical, which is sort of hard to imagine now. I know, one of the, some of the best songs of all times, of all, of like some of the best Disney songs. 
Oh, easily, yeah. Three of those songs were nominated for an Oscar that year. I mean, that's how, you know, the quality of these songs. So they decided that making it a musical is probably the best direction after the success of The Little Mermaid in 1989. And that's really, we said this at the top of the episode, the the movie that really kick-started the so-called Disney renaissance. I mean, that was really like the, the, set the tone for the next 10 years for the company. So Linda Wolverton, who went on to co-write The Lion King, she also contributed to Milan. She wrote Maleficent. She wrote, well, we don't want to talk about this, but she wrote Alice in Wonderland in their sequels. She becomes the first woman to script a major animated feature. Uh, and it was quite the promotion for her. And why was that, Jordan? Because at this point, her only experience writing for Disney had basically just been working on episodes of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Also a classic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting to note that this is really the first Disney animation film that used a dedicated screenwriter. I mean, prior to that, most animated films kind of use story artists mm-hmm. and story editors to dictate what, you know, what the film would be and to beat out the different plot points. And at this point, Michael Eisner had just joined Disney and uh, he was relatively new to the animation world and he basically wasn't used to how the stories traditionally came together, you know, as these big collaborative efforts in animators' offices rather than, you know, in the mind of a dedicated screenwriter. So he brought Linda Wolverton on board to work this script out, and they really worked hard on this. Apparently, the, the prologue at the beginning of the movie with the, you know, with the stained glass windows and everything, apparently that scene uh, was rewritten some 200 times before they got the final version. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, think about when you're writing an article or even like writing a song or something. You want to get that opening just perfect because that just sets the, that draws people in. So in a way, I understand that. But still, that's, that, is, damn times. that is a lot. Yeah. So at this point, the film is starting to take shape, or at least the loose idea for the film is starting to take shape. And Roger Williams punts it to his buddy and another British gentleman, Richard Purdue, who starts work on the non-musical version of the film under a producer named Don Hahn. Uh, And it was meant to be kind of like The Rescuers Down Under, which was also in production at Disney at this time. And it was also a non-musical. So that was kind of the the tone that they were going for. But executives jump in. After seeing some early footage, Walt Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg scraps the entire thing and orders the team to start over from scratch, over which Williams quits. (laughs) I mean, yeah, understandably so. I mean... You can see this early storyboard on YouTube. I think it's like 20 minutes of it. And it's pretty interesting. It kind of follows in the tradition of Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty where Belle is basically being harassed by an older woman. This time it's like her aunt, I think, because she wants to marry her off to Gaston. And uh, at this stage, the enchanted objects were, I think with just one exception, voiceless and faceless. And as I said earlier, there were no songs in this. And the comment that kept recurring again and again for this early storyboard was that it was kind of dark. It was like, I, I think the summation was kind of unfair that I heard mostly for this early version was that it was basically two people sitting at dinner every night. <laughs> and the general consensus was it was just pretty dark and depressing. And this became really even more apparent when The Little Mermaid premiered in 89 with, you know, Under the Sea and, and yeah. you know, Caribbean music and all the colors and the songs. It's bright. So they're like, okay, maybe having a movie that's mostly like dinner in a dark, gloomy castle, like a, you know, animated masterpiece theater kind of thing, <laughs> maybe isn't the way to go. So they changed everything and, and the producers approached Beauty and the Beast Basically, is an animated Broadway musical. Although, with, you know, the current Disney plan of rebooting every single franchise as, like, a dark and gritty origin story, I, for one, am am thrilled for a My Dinner with Andre-esque version of Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) 
<laughs> My dinner with Lumiere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, uh, Little Mermaid directors John Musker and Ron Clements are then approached and asked to take over production. But they basically said we are, are they British? Would they say uh, we're knackered? I, I think yeah. they're American, but you can say knackered if you uh, want. So they just said, off Disney. <laughs> Um, so then director, the directing team of Kirkwise and Gary Trousdale, who are sort of, I don't want to use the phrase jobbers, but they're like Disney roustabouts. <laughs> They've been working on Epcot short films. They storyboarded Rescuers Down Under. They storyboarded Prince and the Popper. They're teamed up with Han. Yeah, Kirk Wise, it's funny, put himself through art school by drawing caricatures for tourists, not at Disney, but at Universal Studios. They, yeah, Disney, mm. Disney looked past that and hired him anyway. Um, Wise and Trosdale really kind of had their work cut out for them because at this stage in 1989, they basically had to start from scratch, you know, leaving just two years to meet Jeffrey Katzenberg's one film a year pace that he wanted to hit. And Katzenberg, we really haven't talked enough about him. He's kind of the engine behind this whole operation, the so-called, you know, Disney renaissance. Uh, he had this mantra of bigger, better, faster, cheaper. And uh, <sighs> Little Mermaid had certainly, oh. you know, achieved the first two goals of this aim, but making low-budget animated films on a tight schedule really wasn't going to work for these animators. Like, they really believed in quality above all else. You can cut out when I call him an but you have to put in that 30 years later, he would be responsible for the stunning failure of Queeby. What is that? Oh, um, right. Yes, yes, yes. Quick Bites, the vertical-oriented uh, micro-content thing that launched during the pandemic and flopped majestically is it still uh, is it still in existence no i think they had to port all of it to like whatever streamer would have it um <laughs> anyway so what do you say about these next guys the greatest disney composers ashman and mencken howard ashman and alan mencken oh yeah. good lord yes just the the same mccartney of disney yeah yeah that's yes roll with that um, so Katzenberg also decides that the film is going to be a musical. And at this point, he brings on Howard Ashman and Alan Menken to write the score. And you can't say enough about these guys, but Jordan, please try. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were really a throwback to like the Sherman brothers who were Walt Disney's go-to composers who worked on movies like Mary Poppins and The Jungle Book. And Ashman and Menken really brought this Broadway musical sensibility to the production, and they structured the story as if this were for the stage. Considering that this wasn't initially going to be a musical, the final result, I think, has 25 minutes of songs in the film. And I think there's only five minutes of the movie total that has no music at all. So, I mean, they really transformed this top to bottom. To have one small piece of their brilliance, just look at the opening bell sequence, and it's just such an incredible example of their brilliance. It's, it's like an operetta. Like, it's something that's like Stephen Sondheim would be proud of. I mean, it's what the mm -hmm. folks in the in the Broadway business call an I want song, yeah. where all of the desires and problems of the main characters are laid out. And in three and a half minutes, you have all this information and exposition given to the audience. You know, you have who Belle is, what her relationship to her father is, what her relationship to the town is, what the people in the town think about her, what Gaston wants, what Belle thinks of Gaston. The economy of that song is really amazing, not to mention the, the you know, instrumentation, the arrangements, and the melody. Yes. Um, 
Amazingly, Mankin and Ashman were absolutely terrified about how Disney execs would receive this song. They were like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you putting an operetta? This is for <laughs> kids. Like, what are you, like, this was this in Gilbert and Sullivan. But thankfully, Disney executives loved it. And in any event, the duo had uh, much bigger problems than Disney's response. Yeah, so Howard Ashman has just found out that he's dying of complications from AIDS. And... The other important thing in his life at this point is that he's working on his passion project, which is Aladdin. And he was reticent to pick up Beauty and the Beast because, um, you know, he had (laughs) other things on his plate. And the team at this point has also relocated uh, production from London to New York to accommodate him. And that's what uh, factors into this next part of the story. So Howard Ashman lived up about two and a half hours north of New York City, kind of upstate New York. And it's amazing to think that so much of the Beauty and the Beast story was banged out in a residence inn in the town of Fishkill, New York, where screenwriter Linda Wolverton and, and the production team would meet to be closer to Howard Ashman. And they really uh, banged out the story together in this residence inn. <laughs> and Katzenberg approves the script, which had input from Ashman and Mencken. And so storyboarding for the film picks back up in 1990. And there's this really amazing article written by the Disney historian Josh Spiegel for uh, Slash Film. And uh, according to him, Ashman wrote most of the lyrics for the six songs, well, seven songs if you count the one that was uh, cut, which we'll talk about later. But uh, Ashman wrote most of the lyrics for these films when he was quite literally on his deathbed, which is, I mean, just makes it all the more astonishing when you hear, you know, how uh, how well-crafted they are and how touching these lyrics are. And he would die before the film was released, although he did manage to see a rough cut of it, and uh, there is a dedication to him in the film's credits. Apparently his partner, Alan Menken, I mean, he, he didn't know that uh, Ashman was sick until, uh, I think it was the after party for the Oscars ceremony where they had just won for The Little Mermaid, which is, if that's true, what a, I mean, talk about your moment of glory immediately being undercut by, oh, it's, it's too awful to even think about. Yeah, but, um, good lord. To... Brilliant composers. We'll talk more about them later in the episode, but their gifts live on. Yes, uh, well said. Um, So speaking of the musical part of the film, the voice of Belle beat out 500 other hopefuls for this after seeing an ad in the New York Times, and that's Broadway actress Paige O'Hara. She's 30. She was 30 years old at the time, which actually ended up working in her favor because the team wanted an older sounding voice for the character. Um, There's a bunch of different influences that go into the character, one of which is Judy Garland, which is maybe a tad depressing. But <laughs> yeah, you can definitely see that in the outfit she's wearing, like mm-hmm. that blue and white dress. It's yep. exactly what Dorothy wears in The Wizard of Oz. But uh, apparently, uh, according to Linda Wolverton, at least, she based a lot of Belle's personality on uh, on the actress Catherine Hepburn. So in the scenes where uh, yeah. Belle's dressing the beast's wounds after he saves her from a, a wolf attack, you see a little bit of like play fighting. And she's kind of like, you know, hold still. It won't hurt if you hold still. Like it's it was supposed to be playing on the Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy's relationship in, in the movies in the 30s and 40s. But the big influence was Catherine Hepburn's part in Little Woman when she played Joe March. Speaking to the L.A. Times in 1992, Wolverton said that both Joe March and Belle were strong, active women who loved to read and wanted more more than life was offering to them. Linda Wolverton really wanted to move Belle basically outside the realm of the, you know, helpless princess kind of archetype that Disney had uh, 
really carved out of the last half century. And there's this great story that Linda Wolverton tells. She'd initially written a scene where Belle was sticking pins in a map of all the places she wanted to go. And then by the time the storyboarders had animated it, Belle was just in a kitchen decorating a cake. And she was just like, no, that's not what we agree. This is not who this person is. So they they compromised by going with the Belle as a bookworm angle. So mm-hmm. that's kind of more where her personality came from. In terms of her look, animator Mark Henn said that her visual appearance drew on more modern influences like Jenny Garth, apparently, and Alyssa Milano. And her movements were based in part on ballerinas. I guess he studied for reference, like a lot of tapes of ballerinas moving. You know, you can, if you watch the film, she moves very gracefully. She's light on her stuff. feet. Yeah, she's very light on her feet. Um, For a reference model, the animators hired a woman named Sherry Stoner, who also served as a reference model for Ariel in The Little Mermaid. And what does Sherry Stoner go on to do? She went on to create and voice Slappy Squirrel in The Animaniacs. I love that. I love that so much. Getting back to Judy Garland, we talked about how her her blue and white outfit was really inspired in part by, by Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz. Blue, the designer said, was an important color because if you look at the opening bell sequence in the town, she's the only person wearing blue, which was meant to to signify that she's sort of out of step with everybody in town. Um, And then later during the famous Beauty and the Beast title song sequence in the ballroom, the Beast is wearing a blue regal uh, suit which is sort of meant to be, you know, their way of, of visually signifying that he's kind of connected to her now. Um, I love that suit. Which, which is it's a great suit. Um, <laughs> they really borrowed a lot from The Wizard of Oz. I guess the, the Enchanted Rose with the petals falling off was supposed to be inspired by the Wicked Witch's hourglass. And you know when the Beast is getting his makeover before that Beauty and the Beast, like, dinner sequence? Mm-hmm. And, like, Lumiere's giving him a pep talk, and they cut to him, and he's got, like, curlers in his beard, and, like, his hair's all done up, and he, he's just, I look stupid. That was supposed to be, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be, but it definitely seemed to be an homage to the Cowardly Lion when he's getting a makeover at the Emerald City, right when they uh, when they arrive yeah. with the ribbons and the curls. So yeah, a lot of a lot of little winks to the Wizard of Oz there. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. 
Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. We mentioned earlier, this was supposed to be a new kind of princess. This was like a Disney princess for the 90s. Belle apparently was, I think, the oldest Disney princess at the time. She was, I think, 21, whereas Ariel, I think, was just 16. And uh, Pedro Harry, like, sort of celebrated this fact. She said, I love the fact that Belle's independent. She wasn't looking for a man, and she's highly intelligent. I also love that she's the oldest Disney princess. She's the only one that they ever created to be in her 20s. All the others have been teenagers. So there's a maturity about her, which is true. And this is an insane factoid about the homogeny of Disney. I guess in this era, Belle was the first Disney princess that was brunette, which (laughs) is crazy. And also, apparently, she's the second Disney princess to be of non-royal birth. I think Cinderella was was the first. Can you imagine, like, if that casting news was announced today and it would be, like, BuzzFeed being, like, diversity win. Belle is the first (laughs) brunette Disney princess and it's giving us life. Anyway, Pedro Hare is incredible. She knocks it out of the park. And there's a great behind-the-scenes story where she is, uh, Trousdale and Wise talk about this. They're recording the Beast's death scene. And we'll talk about how they actually recorded this later, which is also precedent-breaking. But um, she is crying so hard when they're taping this that the engineers actually stop recording and, you know, punch into the studio monitors and ask if she's okay. At which point she looks up, raises her hand and says, acting. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, man, if you can fool a bunch of hardened studio engineers into checking if you're doing a wellness check on you, you're a hell of an actress. Um, So we just alluded to the Beast. And uh, so there were a lot of people that they went through before they landed on a gentleman named Robbie Benson. So Lawrence Fishburne, Val Kilmer, Tim Curry, and Mandy Ooh. Patinkin were all Ooh. supposedly considered for the role of the, of the Beast, uh, which was eventually played by Robbie Benson, who's one of the... Uh, no, I, I keep using the term animation roustabout, which is probably <laughs> insulting, but... Um, Benson's been kicking around the industry for a long time. He famously lost the role of Luke Skywalker to Mark Hamill after getting to the screen test phase. I didn't know that. Wow. But uh, he he didn't completely strike out. I guess when he was a kid, <laughs> he dubbed old Godzilla movies into English back in the 60s. Like some of his earliest gigs were just screaming like, oh, Godzilla. Like, yeah. So he has that going for him, which is nice. <laughs> um, he and O'Hara record their lines together, which is um, any animation nerds will know was kind of a rarity in the history of the genre. You know, The Simpsons are famously one of the shows that broke that convention of having this, the cast in the same room. Anyway, so he and Recorder recorded their lines together. Robbie's lines are slightly pitch modulated, which is funny because... I don't know how they actually did this, but it would have been probably pretty tricky at the time unless... No, no, it wouldn't have because they were already doing the, like, unsolved mysteries, like, like that pitch modulation. (laughs) Obviously, it's not that severe. But, you know, Benson would continue to dine out on the Beast for a long time, as he rightly should have. Uh, there's a oh, great, totally. great story about this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love this. Apparently, um, in Robbie Benson's post-Beast life, moms would come up to him and ask him to do the Beast roar for their kids. 
And their kids would inevitably burst into tears because instead of a, you know, a vaguely lovable cartoon character, you just have a strange man screaming in your kid's face. So I guess Robbie Benson stopped doing it and he started doing some other line instead. Roar at my child. <laughs> yeah, please. But you're, you, you missed a, a crucial bit of, uh, of Beast fantasy casting that kind of, sort of, almost took place. Apparently, Regis Philbin uh, auditioned to play the part of the Beast, which sounds like an urban legend, but this was, I guess, around the time that Disney bought ABC, so now Regis and Kathy Lee were, were in the Disney family, as it were. And uh, producer Don Hahn, in an interview with Glamour, I think in 2016, and I don't think he was being sarcastic, said that both Regis and Kathy Lee auditioned, but he was kind of vague about what the roles were. He said that he still has Regis's audition tape and that he, and this is a quote, auditioned for Belle's dad or the Beast or something. And I, I prefer to believe it was the Beast. Apparently, Kathy Lee could actually sing, so they you know, had a harder time turning her down. But uh, I think everybody kind of knew pretty quickly that she wasn't right for the role. I could see Regis being like... No, Even like Lumiere in a way. No, yes, yeah. He's got yes, a cartoonish yeah. voice. Yeah, maybe yeah, not the beast, yeah, yeah. but like, I mean, even Bell's dad, maybe. It's just such like executive think. Like, oh, we just paid a load for this thing. How can we jam them together awkwardly? <laughs> so, speaking of beast, um, and I want everyone to know Jordan's title for this section in the outline is "We Can Rebuild Him." <laughs> <laughs> um, the design for the beast. It's great character design. I, yes. It really is. It's one of those things that looks like it has a bit of the uncanny to it, but everything is familiar. And so they achieve that by using the head structure and horns of a bison, the arms and body of a bear, the eyebrows of a gorilla, which is partially why he's so expressive in the face, the jaws, teeth, and mane of a lion, which I guess good warm up for doing Lion King a couple years later, uh, tusks from the wild boar, and then he has the backwards bent legs of a wolf. And... I guess Katzenberg wouldn't let the animators see Robbie Benson beforehand because he would unduly influence their design of the character. And he's supposed to be 10 feet tall, which is wild when you consider the next design note that they originally had for The Beast, which is one of the film's storyboard artists, Chris Sanders, who used birds, insects, and fish as touchstones, which is horrifying. Uh, Trousdale and Wise, in the film's commentary, used the phrases avian insectoid and stag beetle and mantis beasts which just put that in your mind's eye for a second and it's also just it's just a bad say it again tell them again so that they can really visualize it i'm putting my mouth as close to the mic as possible avian insectoid and stag beetle and mantis beasts it just doesn't make any sense to me because it's like you don't use god's most terrifying creatures as design notes for a children's film But it's funny because Sanders later goes on to co-direct and create Lilo and Stitch, and he voices Stitch, which perhaps fulfilled his need to create animated sins against God and man alike. (laughs) You know, in I think it's in the the West Wing of not the White House, the Beast's Castle. uh, (laughs) There are all those like really terrifying sculptures of. I mean, beasts yeah. is the only way to put it. I guess those were early character drawings for how they were, you know, artist renderings of how they were going to do the beast that didn't can you make imagine the final a, cut. Can you imagine a Sorkin scripted Beauty and the Beast where they're doing, <laughs> they're doing walk and talks throughout the castle? 
But um, yeah, so apparently all those, uh, or at least many of those sculptures and stuff of these kind of really horrifying, monstrous, almost like gargoyle figures in, I, I, I don't think the gargoyle, I think the gargoyles are set, but the ones in the hallway that are really scary looking are disused beast concept designs. My favorite story about designing the beast uh, was designed by uh, an animator, Glenn Keane. And for inspiration, he went to the Los Angeles Zoo to study animals. And he came across a 600-pound antisocial gorilla named Caesar. Antisocial is a very crucial part of the story. I guess when Keen tried to draw him, Caesar charged at him and slammed against the bars. And Keen knew that this was how Belle would feel when she first caught sight of the beast. And that proved to be something of like a breakthrough in his creation of the character. Do you want to know something funny about Caesar? Yeah, I do. He was the first gorilla born by Caesarean section, which is where he gets his name. <laughs> yep. You, you, it's astonishing how quickly you pulled that up. You're you're quick on the Google draw there, my friend. <laughs> wow. Another part of the Beast's Anatomy, uh, we may even end up cutting this, but I guess in an interview with Screen Rant. Never. Uh, <laughs> Glenn, here, you read this part. I feel like you, you, you'll get some a perverse delight out of sharing this information. <laughs> in an interview with Screen Rant, Glenn Keane claims they gave the Beast a rainbow butt like a mandrill. But he says, nobody knows that but Belle. Um, uh, he might have been being facetious. We don't know. And Keen actually wished that the beast had remained a beast into oh, transforming his incredibly handsome human self later on. And um, I don't know. This dude's got some issues because he wanted <laughs> he wanted to have Bell also feel that way and be like sort of mezzo mezzo on the transformation, implying that she wanted him to stay a beast. And also at Keen's request, they had the voice of Bell overdub the line. Do you think you could grow a beard to tack on at the end? And it got cut. And this is also under Jordan's header of the beast's rainbow ass. So in keeping with our tradition of hashtagging specific episodes of the show, if you have anything you want to tweet at the show about Beauty and the Beast, please use the hashtag the beast's rainbow ass. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, on the topic of the beast transformation, the smoke used during that scene when he kind of like spins around very Lazarus-like and begins turning back into a human. That smoke wasn't animated. That was actually uh, real smoke footage used for 1985's The Black Cauldron film that Disney did with uh, with Jim Henson. Yeah, it's funny. We'll get into a little bit of the of this later on, but this film like broke a lot of barriers with um, regards to animation technology, and it's funny that they were still also trying to cut corners where they could. Ah, bring in the smoke we already used. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah, that kind of seems like of all the things you could cut corners on, that seems like, I mean, I, I, I'm not an animator, so I don't know. I, I Actually, you know what? I take that back. I can imagine. You how, are an animator? No, no, no. I, <laughs> all the little tendrils and stuff, I guess that could be really annoying and time consuming. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that smoke has some history. Um, we were trying to figure this out earlier about the best way to address the beast. Is it the mm -hmm. beast or just beast? And, I like uh, giving him a little dignity. I like giving him the title. The title, it yeah. Feels, it feels appropriately respectful. But according to some sects of Disney scholars, the beast actually has a first name, which you can use if you get close enough to him, I guess. Yeah, so again on the commentary, Trousdale and Wise joke about never having given him a name. And there's a persistent rumor that you will see in the Disney circles of the internet uh, which I don't really recommend going into, um, that the Beast's real name is Adam. But this does not come from, I don't think, canon stuff. It comes from a CD-ROM trivia game that Disney licensed called The D-Show. <laughs> 
though multiple Disney staffers, including Glenn Keane, who supervised all the animation for it, have gone on record, said the Beast's name is not Adam. But you have an alternate theory about this. Yeah, I'd heard the whole, like, Adam name came from uh, the Broadway musical that they made of Beauty and the Beast a few years after the, the film premiered. But yeah, you're right. Producer Don Hahn said in an interview with Glamour, had we named him, we would have named him a French name because the fairy tale takes place in France. So he would have been Francoise or something. <laughs> but also, he doesn't care. He said, like, if you want him to be Prince Adam, go for it. Make him Prince Adam if you want. <laughs> the Beast is all things to all people. <laughs> right. Much like Jerry Orbach. Uh, well, the Beast is... The hero of this movie, I guess, at least the male hero. Let's talk about the uh, the villain, shall we? I thought you were going to be like, but the real hero of the film <laughs> is Jerry um, Orbach. Yeah, it's Jerry Orbach. So uh, Gaston, one of the famous Disney villains, one of my also favorite uh, Walt Disney World characters because it's just like a handsome buff dude who rolls around wearing the outfit. They don't like costume him any other way. But you know who they could have gotten to play him was Jay Leno, uh, the supervising animator for Gaston. Uh, Andreas Deha originally designed the character with an enormous Jay Leno-esque chin and jaw, which is a huge backhanded compliment to Jay Leno because standard Disney operating procedure is making your villain as physically unappealing as possible. Uh, so Katzenberg later comes in, has him refine the character and wants to make him, you know, the hottie that he is in the final film a lot of i'm uncovering a lot of things about myself during this taping i mean it's tough because i mean the hero of the story is this ugly monster so i mean you kind of almost have to accentuate the difference by making the villain this sexy monster right you know it's true i feel like the um who's the bad guy in hercules hades yeah i always thought that hades was supposed to be like a jay so maybe just disney really has it in for jay leno <laughs> and making him the villain who uh jay leno was the answer that i gave on a uh on, when i was on who wants to be a millionaire that i got wrong oh. so I, I personally have it in um, for jay <laughs> yeah so i i'm on disney's side if they're gonna make jay leno the villain on all of these uh movies but um yeah i mean they, they basically they kind of needed to accentuate the difference between the beast and Gaston by making him, you know, this handsome, good looking guy to kind of offset it. They apparently based his physical appearance off the arrogant character from Stephen Sondheim's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, uh, Miles Gloriosus. There's a little bit of Superman in there and I guess some soap opera stars too. Um, and apparently, the screenwriter, Linda Wolverton, based his personality on some ex boyfriends. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah. But my favorite story about developing Gaston is that one of the supervising animators said there was actually a contest to design his chest hair that's exposed when he sings Every Last Inch of Me's Covered with Hair. Go ahead, sing the line. <laughs> I was I feel like you Go ahead. you really sing the line. I can't I can't do it. But how many variations of Gaston's chest hair did they go through? About twenty. 200 initial drafts of the opening monologue, 20 different variations of chest hair for Gaston. I hope you people know how much <laughs> Disney bled for you for this film. <laughs> In the realm of alternate universe casting, uh, Rupert Everett auditioned, but I guess he didn't sound arrogant enough. Just too darn likable. But he <laughs> redeemed himself and he was cast as the voice of Prince Charming in Shrek 2 a decade later. Um, other potential Gastons were Donny Osmond, and Patrick Swayze. I can see Swayze. Yeah, um, Swayze would be great. I didn't realize this. Donny Osmond apparently provided the singing voice for Shang and Mulan. Mm, I, I, makes me like it less now. <laughs> no disrespect. I mean, yes, disrespect to Donny Osmond. Sorry. I know you're probably an Osmond's fan, right? I mean, I don't know. Mm. Uh, what was it? One Bad Apple? 
He's a little bit country. She's a little bit rock and roll yeah, or the other no. way around. Yeah, I'm a little more country, I guess, then. Oh, like, <laughs> <laughs> But so answer the, the real burning question, which is, does Gaston die? Yes, there is. That's kind of a something of a debate in, uh, in Beauty and the Beast circles. There's an Easter egg when Gaston's falling from the castle turret. For a split second, tiny skulls appear in his eyes, almost like a subliminal message. And um, according to the filmmakers, that's meant to indicate that Gaston does indeed die from the fall. But hmm. the guy from the who voiced the characters, a guy by the name of Richard White, thinks he didn't die. He's gone on record saying, did you see a body? I never saw a body. <laughs> Is that uh, how he thinks animation works? Like, he thinks that, like, <laughs> does he not have object permanence? Where he's like, oh, something falls out of sc- frame. It doesn't exist. Um, I guess they were originally going to be less subtle and uh, a bit more obvious about, yes, Gaston did die. An early version of the storyboard had him surviving the fall only to be mauled to death by wolves. Hell yeah. <laughs> Which that I guess slaps. they did end up reusing that for uh, for Scar in, uh, in Lion yeah, King true. when the hyenas ripped them apart. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. All right, let's get into more alternate casting lightning rounds here. First up is Cogsworth. John Cleese supposedly turned down the role of Cogsworth to appear in, wait for it, an American tale, Fievel Goes West, one of the also misbegotten sequels to classic properties. 
I would put Rescuers Down Under with that, too. I think American Tale of Five Goes West was released on the same day as Beauty and the Beast, too. Really Woof. unfair, yeah. Yeah. But if, if you, like, I, I rewatched Beauty and the Beast uh, in advance of doing this episode. The lines, I mean, it sounds like Basil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers. Like, he, Cogsworth is written, you can just hear John Cleese doing those lines. It really makes sense that he was, like, the one that they approached first. Yeah. Apparently, they considered asking Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, I should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but his schedule was slammed because he was doing Star Trek Next Gen. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen mm-hmm. also missed out. So they went with David Ogden Styers, I think is how you say his name, who played, uh, it was familiar to me as Major Winchester on MASH, though he originally auditioned for Lumiere. I feel like you should you should take Lumiere from here on out. Yeah, well, speaking of Lumiere, Dan Castellanata, the voice of Homer Simpson, apparently auditioned for the role, but it ultimately went to Jerry Orbach, baby. Famously of Law & Order and also the dad from Dirty Dancing, who also won a Tony. Uh, for his work in Chicago. And he called his take on the candlestick a combination of Maurice Chevalier, Gene Kelly, and Pepe Le Pew, along with a little bit of Fred Astaire. God, I love Jerry O'Rock. I don't know if it's going to influence my appreciation for Beauty and the Beast or Law and Order more. It's just so <laughs> weird to me that there's a link between those two. What is it, 50, but, uh, 52nd or one of the streets in Midtown is named Jerry Orbach Way? Oh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. I mean, I know I mean, he obviously has a big theater background, but still, it just it, it is very weird to me. New York native, um, born in the Bronx, baby. Oh, yeah. All right, continue. All right, I'll take us to Mrs. Potts. I got a lot to say about Mrs. Potts. Do it. So Julie Andrews was originally considered to be the voice of everybody's favorite tea receptacle uh, before the part ultimately went to Angela Lansbury, who, according to my research, and I really hope this is true, recorded her dialogue between breaks on the set of Murder, She Wrote. Isn't that great? I mean, it's more or less how I imagined it, and I'm so glad that that's how it was in reality. Life is what happens in between takes of Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) Uh, Side note, everything gets back to Murder, She Wrote. Uh, Jerry Orbach, David Ogden Stairs, and Joanne Worley, who played the voice of the wardrobe, all made guest appearances on Murder, She Wrote. Which now I take to mean that Murder, She Wrote is part of the extended Disney, (laughs) and therefore the Marvel extended universe. (laughs) So... Put Angela Lansbury in a Marvel film, you cowards. I mean, there's this insane story. So I guess Angela Lansbury flew to New York from, I I, I guess, Los Angeles to record the title song for the movie. And the flight had to make an emergency landing because there was a bomb scare. I guess somebody claimed that there was a uh, bomb on board and they had to make an emergency landing, I think, in like Las Vegas. And so, I mean, that's enough to shake anybody. But Mm -hmm. Lansbury is such a pro. Flight continued on eventually to New York, landed, did the song in one take. One take Lansbury. Absolutely amazing. I I think we'll we'll, we'll get more into the music of this later on, but good Lord, what a pro. But did you know that Mrs. Potts was originally supposed to be called Mrs. Chamomile because Mm -hmm. producers wanted a name that was supposed to be, you know, the most soothing association possible. Unfortunately, nobody knew the correct way to pronounce it. If it's chamomile, chamomile. And they were also worried about kids not being able to pronounce it. Same with the character of Lumiere, which is hard enough to say. Um, they was originally going to be called Chandal, like Chandelier. Honestly, I think Lumiere is harder to say for me than Chandal. Yeah, it just reminds but, me of uh, Chan- Chandels. Chandels. Um, why didn't they Tommy call James her Mrs. The Chandels? Yeah, why didn't they just call her Mrs. Sleepy Time Tea? <laughs> Mrs. Celestial Seasonings. Yeah. <laughs> On the topic of, of Mrs. Potts, her 
what I assume to be her son, Chip. Uh, He's a ward of the state. <laughs> I mean, Chip seems very, very, very young, and, and Mrs. Podge seems quite old. Maybe it's her grandson. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But Chip was originally supposed to be a one-line character, and the line was, prepare to die. <laughs> I guess maybe that was when they, at the end of the movie, when the the objects are fighting off the townspeople invading the castle, and maybe he was going to spill scalding hot water in LeFou's eye or something. But um, the producers decided they really wanted to get like a kid's point of view in the story. And that's what Chip was. Chip was sort of the kid's access point. So that's why they beefed up the role of Chip. And prior to that, the sort of token cute role in this movie was supposed to be a little music box that jumped around and didn't speak, but it made like little chiming sounds. But that wasn't the only element dropped from the final film. Yeah, get into some of the what ifs of the uh, of the of the score. I mean, of the musical numbers. There's a uh, a long lost musical number, a very like eleven minute long musical number that got cut from the uh, the final version. It's called Human Again, and it was basically the sequence features all of the beasts, many servants who are tired of living as household objects, longing to be human again. And uh, again, the song was dropped in part because it was added 11 minutes to the movie and it just dragged down the pace of the story. And it created timeline issues too in the narrative. Uh, basically, like, what is the dad doing all this time? Like, it just added like days to the story, I guess, and it just it messed everything up. And it was basically considered too ambitious. So what did our friends Howard Ashman and Alan Menken write in its place, Heigl? They wrote something there, which they kind of dash off at the last minute because they needed something a little simpler, shorter, more direct, puts the focus back on Belle and her relationship to the Beast. But not all is lost for Human Again because it's included in the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast. And then it's actually thrown back as an extra on the DVD and Blu-ray editions uh, when those come out in 2002. I'm just now thinking about this, but this is still a very dark movie. Like it is dark and adult. You have Chip is like the only child character. All the all the characters are adults. They're trapped in a Kafkaesque nightmare of slave <laughs> servitude as inanimate objects. It's f-ing dark, dude. Honestly, rewatching it, the scariest part to me, and there were many. Yeah. Was when when the beast frees Bell's dad and puts him in this carriage. And the carriage move it moves like a spider. And the right. way its legs move, it's, I can't even really articulate why it's terrifying, but it is so upsetting. It's Freud. It's the uncanny. It's like right, seeing yeah. that's what the whole that's why the furniture thing is so sinister to me, because just anytime <laughs> you have a an inanimate object that's been like humanized in some way your mind like i mean according to freud like your subconscious like sub- is just like automatically like what the f- is that i'm unsettled anyway and one of them is a child which is so much worse <laughs> it boggles my mind that they were like that's how we need to make this film lighter let's have a child who's trapped as a slave in an inanimate object <laughs> anyway well it could have uh, been but, a lot worse though yeah i was gonna say was... great oh great segue could have been a lot worse because there was a scene where I guess the beast was going to drag a dead animal carcass into the castle. Here's a question. Does the beast kill only what he eats? Because, like, he's cooked for, right? So is he doing this? Does he kill for fun? Or I mean, it, just it is the most back... dangerous game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Other lightning round. Other bits and bobs. Oh, speaking of when uh, when Maurice Bell's dad is uh, is lost in the woods, uh, towards the beginning of the movie, when he when he ends up, uh, you know, the horse runs away, he sees a bunch of signs like in a fork in the road. One of them, if you look really closely, points the way towards Anaheim, which is the home of 
Disneyland. It's also like in Nash when they have all the signs pointing to everybody's hometown oh, in yeah. the camp, like 4,000 miles to Des Moines. Yeah, maybe that was a David Ogden Stars tribute. Yeah. And uh, oh, speaking of Maurice's horse, uh, the horse is called Philippe, and this name, and I guess other variants of Philip, means lover of horses. Your mom's a French teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? I sure didn't. <laughs> what else we got? Um, as per Disney tradition, they throw characters of different people involved in production in, Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise are in the scene where Belle is given the book. Three men sing in this scene. Uh, look, there she goes. The girl who's so peculiar, I wonder if she's feeling well. F***ed up thing to say about a woman who just wants to read. They're the two people on either side of the blonde guy. And again, you know, again, f***ed up thing to say. There's three women who swoon over Gaston in that scene. They were termed the Bimbets. And this is true. Ha- and you look at IMDb, that's what they're called. That's how they're credited. And their hairstyles are references to Ariel's, Bell's, and Jasmine. Which wasn't even released at the time, too. That was just yeah, like a Yeah, little... it seems like, yeah, super deep cut to throw in. Um, oh, God. Do Bambi. <laughs> oh, yes. So in the opening shot of the movie, there's a cameo made by Bambi's mother. Uh, you can see in the opening shot of the movie, she's drinking from a stream in the lower right in front of the castle. So, uh, you know, as traumatizing as so many moments of this movie can be, at least know that Bambi's mom got away, everybody, and she's living uh, on the Beast's front lawn, which somehow mm-hmm. makes me, I guess, less happy about her survival now, <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> it would have been great if they'd kill her again. I'd say that the- was the carcass that the Beast was dragging in. Uh <laughs> So Belle, though, pops up again in Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, which is on the sort of downward slide of Disney movies, in my opinion, throughout the 90s. Uh, But, you know, she's reading during it. And also in that film, speaking of beloved characters who have been slaughtered. (laughs) uh, Yes, um, I guess Pumbaa also makes a cameo, or at least his body does, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame because he appears to have been slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And And the magic carpet from Aladdin pops up. Oh, yeah, I think it's, like, being sold or something. Yeah, it's, like, hanging in a stall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the directors have confirmed all of these cameos, so it's not just a reactive imagination, so. Well, and there's the there's one last one. In Aladdin, when uh, the sultan is, like, sort of being <laughs> magically enchanted and infantilized by Jafar, one of the, be- the, one of the toys he's playing with is the beast. I think my favorite little odds and end factoid is, you know, the scene when the beast asks Cogsworth about like a special thing he can do for Belle and Cogsworth responds with, well, you know, there's the usual things, flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. Uh, the voice actor for Cogsworth, David Ogden Stairs, um, that's probably not how you say his name. I'm sorry, David. I think I'm it's a big Stiers, fan of right? Is it Stiers? But uh, he, he apparently improvised that last part in the vocal booth and the directors liked it so much that they kept it in. Yeah, that's a great line. Uh, and as again with every Disney film, there's hidden Mickey's. And so if you're <laughs> if you're watching along at home while you listen to this podcast, which why would you? Uh, the Mickey's are at the top of the center bookshelf in the library. Uh, after Gaston and his men chop down the tree, there are three droplets of water that form an upside down Mickey head, which is wild. Um, there are three stones by the roots to the left of the cottage at the beginning that also form an upside-down Mickey head. And on the back of Cogsworth's head, there's a latch that looks a, a scotch like Mickey's face. So getting into more the nuts and bolts of the film, but 
This, we mentioned a little bit early on that this is filmed kind of during a transition period for the animation industry, but they're, they're off the, they're on the wrong foot already from the beginning because they, you remember they scrapped an early version of this film. So the production team has two years to finish it, which is down from the standard Disney operating timeline of three or four. So again, going back to Peter M. Nichols, he says that this is one of the first film that Disney considered using computer animation for, but Three months of work with an early version of computer animation yielded exactly one wireframe chicken leg, which is, again, like 200 drafts of the opening monologue, 20 versions of Gaston's chest hair, three months to sculpt a wireframe chicken leg in a computer. And so they said, F- it. Uh, and they they use... um. They go back to traditional animation, which is then rendered with a scanning and compositing system called CAPS, Computer Animated Production System, developed by Disney for Pixar. And this is one of the f- earliest collaborations between the two companies. Yeah, I think this was the second Disney movie after Rescuers Down Under to use this system, but it was the first, you know, non-sequel prestige film. And this system allowed for characters and scenery to be depicted in a wider range of colors and to be placed on separate layers to give the illusion of depth. So, you know, you see that in the, in the Beauty and the Beast title song sequence. It's so much more three-dimensional and just the different layers have yeah. varying degrees of focus. It's really, it was strange watching it from the vantage point of, of 30 years later to see the moments that were very clearly traditional animation and then these moments when they do get into sort of primitive computer animated stuff because it, the, the the juxtaposition between the two really pretty jarring. Yeah, and the technology that underpins the industry is advancing so fast that during the two years they were producing this, the animation, computer animation, gets good enough that they're able to use it for the ballroom dance scene. But the dance scene at the end of the film is again an ex- sort of an example of economy. Uh, they reused animation from Sleeping Beauty because they got down to the point where their deadline to finish this was literally days away. I mean, that's something, there's a lot of YouTube clips of like, little moments that Disney recycled, like from characters just like turning around or like waving a flag or in motion, or in this case, dancing, where, I mean, they they reuse animation from movies that are 40, 50 years old in some cases too. It's really amazing how they kind of, you know, obviously change the details on it, but in terms of the actual motion of it, it's really interesting. But yeah, there's a YouTube clip where you can see the the ballroom dance at the very end, right before the credit sequence. It's the same as uh, at the very end of uh, Sleeping Beauty when they're, they're, dancing apparently uh don Hahn, the producer talks on the, the commentary clip uh about keeping the film really really lean with smash cuts and no extraneous exposition or dialogue which is you know one mm-hmm. of the ways that they helped get beauty and the beast done on time but the finished product consisted of are you ready for this Seven thousand feet of hand-drawn film 1295 backgrounds 226,000 painted animation cells and over a million drawings created by nearly 600 animators, artists, and technicians over the course of about four years. That is insane. That is, yeah. I mean, let's do a little. I guess I don't know how that stacks up to normal, you know, any other animation. That might just be standard. Yeah, I mean, but still, that's just hearing that is insane. But. Enough about the nuts and bolts of the thing. Let's when it finally gets out into the world, even in a, an incomplete form. This was a first for Disney in that when they screened it at the New York Film Festival in September '91, they only screened a partially completed version of it. Roughly seventy percent of the completed film was shown at this premiere. 
The version that they showed at the film festival included pencil tests and storyboards. You could see like coffee stains and paper folds. And sometimes there'd be a character that would be accompanied by arrows and hand scribbled numbers on it. And it was pretty revolutionary as far as Disney was concerned, because obviously they're so concerned about, you know, the finished product and how they're presented to the public. This is really one of the first times that they pulled back the curtain and let you see, you know, how they did what they did. I mean, they were toggling back and forth between the work in progress and the final result. And in the way, it really added to the experience of seeing it, especially at the New York Film Festival, which was a bunch of cinephiles who really kind of appreciated seeing, you know, okay, this is what, what we started with, and this is what it's going to look like when it's done. Um, and there's clips of it on... Nerds! Um, yeah, yes, yes. Nerds! And you can, you can see the uh, the opening bell sequence uh, that was shown at the New York Film Festival. It's on YouTube, where, I mean, again, it's like three quarters of the way dumb, but every all of a sudden in the middle, they'll just be like chicken scratches on a piece of paper with a character and arrows going where they're walking and stuff. And it really is interesting to see it. But uh, the uh, crowd at the New York Film Festival absolutely loved it. Ten minute standing ovation at wow. the end of the screening. Well deserved. And yeah, and you know, also important to note, probably no children at this screening. So the fact that mm-hmm. a bunch of critics have kind of stamped it in its approval in, in an under three quarters finished version that sort of gets the ball rolling for the adult cachet that the film is going to accrue. And uh, Han says later on, it was almost as if everyone wanted to regard it as live action. Yeah, I mean, no, we, we touched on this at the, the beginning of the episode, but this was really a crucial moment in the history of not only of the Beauty and the Beast, the film, but also just the so-called Disney Renaissance. And there are like really lengthy pieces in Vulture and Gothamist about this premiere. It's really like a big moment in uh, in cinema history. Uh, the New York Film Festival, who, you know, aren't the most nostalgic bunch, they staged a tribute screening for the 25th anniversary in 2016. So this was, this was a big deal. And the... Uh, the co-director, Kirk Wise, said in the, in the Vulture piece, I really do feel that that screening represented the turning point in terms of the audience perception of these movies. From Beauty and the Beast onward, I think animation managed to escape the kids' movie ghetto we've been consigned to for so long. It made the audience look at it not as just cartoons, but as film. I think that look behind the curtain really did give the audience a much clearer understanding of the complexity of these movies and just how much art and decision-making and planning goes into them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, the stretch the stretch from Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. I mean, that's Aladdin. That's nuts. Oh, good yeah. lord. I mean, even the ones that, you know, you you were saying how, you know, Hunchback is kind of... Hunchback so- is fine. Hunchback Hun- is fine. Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan, Pocahontas are kind of... I, I don't like them as much as those first ones you mentioned. But still, I mean, when you watch them today, it still yeah. is pretty astonishing, the quality, especially the stuff that came that wasn't Pixar driven in the late nineties and early two thousands. Yeah. There was a definite. Yeah. um, I mean, it's also important to note, I think at this point that also nightmare before Christmas comes out like a year after Aladdin in between Aladdin and Lion King. And that's not, I mean, that is a Disney product, but like you want to talk about crazy animation achievements. I mean, the stop motion in that movie, Henry Selleck is just, that is out of control. Uh, and, and I think if you're going to consider that film in the lineage of Disney, that's another feather in their cap, man. I mean, good Lord. Bat in a thousand, baby. Or close to it. 
But the death of Howard Ashman, the lyricist for this movie, and, and Little Mermaid and Aladdin, really casts a pal over this otherwise really triumphant story. Early in the production, I think this was even before the New York Film Festival, Disney convened a bunch of critics and members of the Motion Picture Academy to watch a really rough cut. Uh, I think the bell sequence was the only thing that was in color, but everything else was in black and white. And it got this extremely enthusiastic response. And the filmmaking team immediately went to St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City to tell Howard Ashman about it. It was where he was dying. Um, And Don Hahn, the producer, told him that the film, quote, would be a great success. Who'd have thought? And Ashman, who's at this point so ill that he's lost his sight and he's extremely frail, he apparently whispered, I would. And he was dead a week later. And uh, he receives a dedication in the closing credits of uh, Beauty and the Beast for, quote, having given a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul. Oh. (sighs) Oh, man. (laughs) It's a real heart punch. Yeah. Well, here, this will help. This will help a little bit. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg claims the mere invocation of Katzenberg will... (laughs) will fire up the rage. Um, he claims that there are two angels watching down on him uh, whenever he makes his movies that help him, you know, put their magic touch on every film that they've made. Those two angels are Howard Ashman and Walt Disney himself. Walt Disney's going, can we make this 10% more racist? Uh, I need some I need some jive talking crows in this film. Uh, God. When Song of the South going in the Criterion Collection? <laughs> yeah. Through chattering teeth from the frozen cryogenic booth he's in. Ugh. Anyway. Um, yeah. So once the film comes out, to no one's, to I guess actually to many people's surprises, in the review mirror, it seems completely obvious, but it conquers the world. Comes out in November 91. Becomes the first animated film to reach 100 million wow. in the US and Canada during its initial run. Finishes as the third highest grossing film of the year behind, as you would probably expect, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as you would less probably expect, (laughs) given that it is most popularly remembered at this point in history for the film in which Kevin Costner butchers an English accent. (laughs) Forgot about that. It's also the highest grossing film in Czech's Notes, Italy that year, beating out, I mean, this is hard to beat out Roberto Benigni in Italy, uh, but it beats out his film... Johnny Stacchino, which is a mistaken identity film in which he, uh, his character is believed to be a, a, a savage gangster. I watched that movie, parts of it, in my uh, college Italian 101 class. <laughs> okay, I love how you but, know that. Oh, yes. Yeah. While we're on the topic of foreign adaptations of Beauty and the Beast, did you know that Jackie Chan, the Jackie Hell Chan, yes. dubbed the Beast voice for the Chinese version of the movie? He sang, too. I love it. Probably while being hit with a ladder. God, (laughs) Jackie Chan is the best. But the film does not only reap financial rewards. It cleans up during award show season. It picks up the Golden Globe for best motion picture in the musical or comedy category. The first animated film to do so. And it becomes the first animated film to be nominated for the best picture Oscar. It wins best original score. It wins best original song. Uh, You mentioned earlier that it has three of the original songs uh, nominated in that category. Bell, the opening number, Be Our Guest, and the title track. And obviously, Be Our Guest was robbed. Which one? uh, We didn't look up what... Do you know offhand what one? Uh, I think the title track, uh, Beating the Beast, won. 
Okay. Well, that's fine. As long as it was kept in-house. But Be Our Guest was robbed. Weird thing about Be Our Guest, that song was basically written, I guess you could say almost by accident, because Mencken uh, wrote this really kind of simple melody just as a dummy melody so that Ashman could write words to it. And it just stuck. Like Mencken would later say that he couldn't write anything better than, quote, that dumb piece of music I wrote initially because it was just right. A really weird part is that I guess in an early version of the Beauty and the Beast script, Be Our Guest was going to be sung to Belle's kidnapped father, Maurice, after he arrives (laughs) at the castle instead of Belle. And then they thought, wait a minute, this is a really great song and production number. Why are we wasting it on what's, you know, kind of a secondary character? So the whole scene had to be reanimated with Belle and the lyrics tweaked and the principals had to be brought back to re-sing it. And uh, side note, the gray stuff in... um, be Our Guest, you know, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. There's a, uh, a Be Our Guest restaurant in Disney World, and I guess they actually serve the gray stuff. And and I don't know what's in it. I, do you know what's in it? I, maybe we should launch an investigative podcast to talk about what's in the gray stuff. It's um, seal meat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's an Eric Andre reference. <laughs> in, the, in the iconic episode where they scare Kristen Cavallari off the set... <laughs> <laughs> Hannibal Burris says, I don't know what kind of meat is supposed I think the only meat that's gray is seal meat. <laughs> it's probably porridge, right? I don't know what French food is gray. Cheese. Uh, nice smoked brie. Anyway, talk about award show season. Yeah, speaking, of, beast, se- speaking of seal meat. <laughs> talk about the Oscars. If they gave Pulitzers for podcast transitions right now. <laughs> That would that would most certainly be that's a Peabody Award right there, uh, but yes, Beauty and the Beast was up for Best Picture, and uh, this was the era when there were only five films per category. So I mean, I feel like that makes the fact that this was the first animated film to be up for Best Picture even more impressive. But the Academy went in the way opposite direction that year and gave the Best Picture Oscar to Silence of the Lambs. Um, Another film in which an older flesh-eating gentleman has undue sway over a young woman. <laughs> 1991, man. Like, Gulf War era. I, yeah. <laughs> weird time. Wacky time. Weird, weird time. Um, but yes, I think that was the only animated film to be nominated for Best Picture until up in 2009, I think. Mm. Fewer than three years after the film's release, it becomes Disney's first animated film to be adapted into a Broadway musical, which subsequently runs for 13 years. Wow. And uh, it's later selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2002, the same year as an IMAX version of the film was released, which I didn't see. Did you see it in IMAX? I did not, no. I do kind of want to, yeah. I want to see Be Our Guest in IMAX, so it sounds awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I want the, like, speaker, like, the synapse rattling <laughs> drops. <laughs> I want that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What more do you say about Beauty and the Beast? Not bad for a film about bestiality and Stockholm Syndrome. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Cue the curb theme. I think well, uh, as always, as always, if you have anything to tweet at us about the show, please do so. Do using the hashtag the beasts rainbow ass, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time for more too much information. I'm Alex Heigl, and I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Too 
Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.